if you come here expecting to see people in feathers and beads <laughs> uh, with bows and arrows, you're going to be very disappointed. From the History Watch Project, this is the History Watch Podcast Series, bringing you up close and personal with history in the real world, with some help from people who know what they're talking about. I am Audra Dipti, and on today's episode of the History Watch Podcast Series, we welcome Dr. Maximilian Forte of Concordia University. Join us as we discuss Indigenous people of the Caribbean, memory, identity, and the politics of history. Dominica Caribs as well. When I went to Dominica, I found some elderly individuals uh, who told me they had been to Trinidad on their own, not as part of any kind of organized effort. In the 50s, 60s, and 70s, showed me photographs, had met the Carib Queen in Arima, and so forth. My father-in-law, who was a customs officer for a very long time, for decades, he remembers what our canoes visiting Port of Spain up to the 1970s. He had to board them and look at what they were bringing and that sort of thing. But, you know, it's being diminished. Uh, the creation of nation states, uh, immigration control, passports, so forth, uh, all of this has helped to erode the movement uh, and communication between communities. That was Dr. Forte discussing attempts by the indigenous communities throughout the region to maintain inter-island connections despite the modern-day challenges they now face. Next, listen to Dr. Forte challenge the ways in which indigenous identities are understood to exist. Maybe I can be devil's advocate here and perhaps say what I think your critics pretty much saying, you know, these are romantic ideas, these are fabricated, these are created identities, which brings us back to the issue of cultural uh, purist ideas about what is indigenous. And I think you ended, I love the way you ended on your article, the only real Caribs. The only real Carib is a pure Carib, and the only pure Carib is a dead Carib. Exactly, that's it. Right. Well, when you have, uh, if you have expectations again of, how can I put it, of a straight line sort of continuity of a sort of racially separate population uh, that's maintained all aspects of its culture, language, religious beliefs, and so on, um, obviously you're not going to find that. Dr. Forte then goes on to discuss the complicated ways in which racial categories intersect with cultural identity and cultural tradition. Who speaks the island Carib language today? The Garifuna, who phenotypically, if we were to see Garifuna people pass by us right now, we might assume, oh look, these are uh, Afro-Caribbean people. And, and, and they may well be predominantly. That's not the point, though. Culturally. Culturally, they're the ones who have maintained a lot of indigenous Caribbean traditions. The very elaborate way of producing cassava bread, where if you look at the way the Garifuna do it in Belize, for example, and read ancient texts about how it was done in, in the Guyanas, they're identical. That's not a recent introduction amongst the Garifuna. They didn't get that from reading National Geographic magazines and so forth. In Dominica, they don't speak the language. They may look in superficial phenotypical terms as more Amerindian than the Garifuna, but culturally the Garifuna are more Amerindian. 
I then asked Dr. Forte to give some examples of the ways in which cultural practices that were indigenous in origin continue on to this day. He responds by giving some examples from Trinidad and Tobago. I mean, if one wants to take an extreme position, the explanation become very difficult. So how is it that rural East Indians in Trinidad to this day um, enjoy using hammocks? Both the word and the object are not East Indian import. And especially in a rural setting, that's where you find the diffusion of Amerindian culture happening the most. There are lots of practices that people are able to identify as being West African, as being East Indian, and so forth, and others that local people are at a loss to explain where this practice came from, how it originated, and so forth. Bathing dogs before hunting, or giving them a kind of bush bath, pouring extracts of leaves into their noses and so forth. Where does that come from? If you ask people, they don't know. They can't. They wouldn't tell you it's an African thing. It's an East Indian thing and so forth. It opens up the possibility. There's a whole number of practices and beliefs and so forth uh, that either are known to be of Amerindian origin or could be. Uh, of Amerindian origin, and no one has claimed. You know, local botanical knowledge, that couldn't have been brought from Africa or India. Mm -hmm. Because in, in they didn't have Yeah, exactly. Um, wasn't their environment. That's right. They had to learn that from someone. So let me ask you this then. It's terribly flawed to assume that, you know, as you say, there was no history happened in the last 500 years. In other words, we have to recognize cultural dynamism. Most of the Caribbean, or all of the Caribbean actually, is multi multiracial for, for all intents and purposes. So you have a number of cultural influences. What is the value of recognizing the contribution or the significance of or the influence of the Amerindian population on the Caribbean? Yeah, that, that's, um, that's a very complicated question because there's all kinds of possible answers from different persons occupying different positions in the society uh, and therefore having different motivations and interests and so forth. I mean, one answer to that question would come from people, let's say, within the Carib community, community in Arima. For some of these individuals, it's a way of feeling more rooted in place of recognizing Trinidad and nothing else as home from the point of view of the success of governments. There's a different set of things at play. One of them is creating a national history that has some depth and substance to it. You know this idea of nation building? So now it's no longer that Trinidad was created in 1962. Now Trinidad has a history that goes back 7,000 years. So it begins to sound a lot more like something like Egypt, for example. <laughs> so it helps to provide a kind of grounding, a sort of anchoring, a, a mooring for the nation that adds depth to its substance, authenticity, and so forth, that it begins to look less and less uh, like a colonial byproduct, something that was created just as a byproduct of, of sugar. And you seem to be vexed with uh, both historians yes. as well as, would it be fair to say, anthropologists? Anthropologists, too, certainly. Yes. Who, and their reading of the sort of contemporary landscape of the Caribbean. Yes. 
I mean, the Caribbean has always been an interesting, complicated, complex place. This makes the picture even more complicated, even more interesting. Uh, it gives you a certain angle uh, of appreciation for the formation of, of nationalism and nationalist political philosophies, things that might have been discarded, read very quickly, uh, or not really reflected upon too much, now take on a new meaning. So it, 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 it provides a, a different understanding of, of nationhood, of nationality, of nationalism, and so forth. Uh, nationalist thinking might be imported, uh, but it's using local materials. And it's been very useful. It's been very useful because it suggests that the Caribbean, a place that I think all of us recognize already as being incredibly complex in terms of its cultural history, is even more complex than people had previously assumed. Because now you have to revise to some extent how one understands the cultural history of the Caribbean and its development. But, you know, that, that also creates an uncertainty. Let's put it this way. Recognizing the Amerindian element can be a bit problematic. What happens if you have more people self-identifying as indigenous? It introduces another set of possibilities. Dr. Forte then goes on to explain the ways in which indigenous history and indigenous identity have become politicized in Trinidad and Tobago. I'm wondering why the successive governments have only recognized Arima as being the last home of the Caribs. You know, they've had several UN delegations over the last 20 or 30 years quizzing them about this, and I found the documents, and I, in fact, published them online and wrote about them, demanding explanations from the government, with explanations that continually change from there are no Amerindians, and the UN asking how is that even possible, to saying, okay, there are a few, uh, but they remain in Arima, to the UN delegations asking how is it possible just in Arima, to then being asked, why don't you have a proper census? Why don't you have that category being introduced? And that's something that hasn't been done. Because it's not even a label. It's an officially recognized label for the small group in Arima alone. Recognition is a form of containment. I would like to see what would be the result in terms of self-identification if in future censuses they admitted that category. It might be interesting. It would definitely be interesting, but I mean that brings us back to the, the issue of categorization that took place in the yeah. 15th, 16th, 17th right. centuries, which as I read your article, I felt so frustrated. And as a historian, you sit there and you think, well, what do these categories mean? You know, none of them are, are really authentic. They're all created and they're all a result of these indigenous groups meeting and encountering Europeans yes, yes. and then being labeled. Right. You know, and then and now we have these terms Caribs and Arawaks yeah, and we're absolutely. referring to them as if they are the or they mean something original to the yeah. region, but yeah. they don't. Is that fair to say? There are so many rich lessons to be learned from the Caribbean. This Carib label is a classic. Because there were no indigenous people self-identifying as Carib when the Europeans came. It was a derogatory term. But it also suggested fear on the part of the Spanish and others 
and therefore adopting that label as a badge of courage and bravery, as if to tell the Europeans, we are your worst nightmare, <laughs> we are terrorists. It had that function as well. There were all kinds of that the colonial chroniclers were writing about, all kinds of disaffected Amerindian populations in the Caribbean that would rebel against the Europeans and say, we're now terrorists. As if to say, we're now joining that resistance. It was a political label rather than a cultural or ethnic label. But it's become an ethnic label. Over time, it becomes an ethnic label. The term Carib as an ethnic label, however, continues to be a contentious one. In 2010, the indigenous people of Dominica officially requested that the name of their territory be changed from Carib territory to Kalanago territory. Earlier in 2015, press releases from the government of Dominica suggested that the name change would be considered later in the year. Next, listen to Dr. Forte discuss the problems of trying to define what it means to be indigenous. Who are the Indians then? Who are they? And then where are they? That's an extremely difficult question to answer. Again, because there are many possible answers. There's the answer from the Carib community. There's the answer from the state. There's the answer from the Catholic Church. There's the answer from the media, from museums and all these different cultural brokers who are involved and who have some sort of interest vested in defining uh, what is indigenous. There, there is no one uh, proper answer uh, to that question. That's what, that's what makes it such a challenge. What is a non-question, are they real carrots? Oh, I could, t I could see your yeah. impatience with that. No, I've been asked that at conferences. Are they really Caribs. Well, you know, it's something that comes up even even for me in, in the classroom. And yeah. Like, who are the black Caribs? Are, are they really Caribs? Is this more imagined than real? But then right. all, any sort of, the way we self-identify is imagined and not right. real. You know, right. we, we have to make imaginary links with some perceived past. Yeah. So it's, it's, it seems like an unfair question to ask. That's true. I mean, and sometimes it's just extremely simple sorts of almost stereotypical ideas. So yes, you're right. I mean, you do get that. You do get that for all kinds of identities, even ones that are, how can I put it, less controversial, where there are no debates about survival or revival or anything like that. So there are two extremes. One extreme is to say they're all wiped out, uh, which leaves you with the problem of explaining those who remain and who identify, self-identify and so The other extreme is to say uh, not only were they not wiped out, but, they, but, but there is this kind of straight line of continuity, a sort of seamless continuity. So there are purists at both ends. There are extremists at both ends. Those who want some kind of purity don't find it and therefore say they were all wiped out. And those who say no survival has happened, has in fact uh, pertained, and, and, and who then overdo their descriptions of what has survived. For example, in the case of Dominica, that is not a controversial proposition whatsoever uh, because they have a reserve, uh, they continue to have a reserve uh, that they've had for 
well over a century. They've been recognized by the government, uh, by previous colonial administrations that in fact created the reserve and so forth. I mean, uh, on the ground, there is recognition, there is awareness of this presence. Uh, that doesn't mean to say that there haven't been discontinuities. That, for example, the Dominican Caribs do not speak um, uh, the island Carib language, but they speak uh, English and Atwan. <laughs> so you see a lot of uh, symbolic uh, attempts to reunite them and political attempts as well. Symbolic such as the voyage of the Gleegly Carib Canoe travel through all the different uh, Amerindian communities in the Caribbean, you know, from Dominica to St. Lucia to St. Vincent, Trinidad and so forth to effort to symbolically relink them and the formation of course of the Caribbean organization of indigenous people to sort of politically unify them. I then asked Dr. Forte to shed some light on the ways in which indigenous peoples were treated during the colonial period. He responds by giving some examples from Trinidad. What was the relationship with the rest of the island? Because there's all these other things going on on the island. Right. No. Well, the idea was to sort of segment and separate these people from the rest of the island, especially with the missions that began to be created in the late 1700s after that Cédula uh, de Poblacion was passed. I brought in all the French planters from the French Caribbean and their slaves. Uh, the idea was to remove the Amerindians from profitable sugar-growing lands to what at that time, the late 1700s, were less profitable cocoa-growing lands. But by the late 1800s, cocoa far surpassed sugar in profitability. And at that point, by the late 1800s, is when you have the British colonial government essentially acting, well, selling off uh, the lands of the missions, which they did illegally. They, they could not do that. They were violating the laws that they themselves were supposed to uphold in doing that. And they essentially expropriating lands from Amerindians who were then moved off you know, in a way, it destroys one thing, but it also disperses and diffuses the object that supposedly was a target of destruction. Because these Amerindians who had existed on these mission lands, it's not that because their lands were sold that they just simply ceased to exist. They moved outwards into all kinds of little villages that, that surround Arima, names that you might know, such as Rio Claro, mm -hmm. uh, Sandy Grande, uh, Talparo, uh, Mundo Nuevo. Brazil, that even to this day when you visit uh, those villages, you see plenty of people who will tell you that they have Amerindian ancestry and who uh, it doesn't take a lot of imagination to figure out that even by looking at them that they do have that ancestry. Um, so, it, it, And then, of course, because cocoa became profitable and there wasn't enough of a local supply of labor to cultivate cocoa, they brought in from 1870 to 1920 in the thousands each year people from Venezuela who had abundant experience with cocoa. And who were these people? They were themselves mostly Amerindian Spanish people uh, of an Amerindian and Spanish mix and so forth. So in fact, bolstering the local Spanish Amerindian population even further. Mm -hmm. uh, so there are a lot of these ironies uh, and unexpected outcomes, I suppose, that always help to strengthen uh, rather than diminish 
uh, the local indigenous community, which again has to be understood as at this point uh, a culturally mixed community. Um, not as the current chief of the Carib community will say, uh, if you come here expecting to see people in feathers and beads uh, with bows and arrows, you're going to be very disappointed. Dr. Forte continues to discuss the experience of indigenous peoples in Trinidad and so elaborates on the role of Catholic missions. They were, of course, uh, Catholic uh, institutions, so uh, trying to assimilate uh, Hammer Indians into Catholic beliefs, but uh, for various reasons, including pragmatic ones, uh, allowing some space uh, for uh, local shamans to exist and to, within the confines of the mission itself. Wow. The, the way they were organized was, first of all, uh, the, the later ones, especially from the late 1700s to the 1800s, all over Trinidad in places such as Toko and so forth, devoted to uh, primarily the cocoa industry. Cocoa was at different times a profitable crop, uh, other times it wasn't. But cocoa was really the mainstay of the mission economy. The Catholic Church was a major exporter uh, of cocoa and it funded its operations from the export of cocoa. Uh, it was a military organization as well. That is, that they organized the Amerindians into military ranks, or generals, captains, and so forth, responsible for the defense of the mission, presumably against, you see, this is also tells you again of the constant influx of people from Venezuela, against hostile raiding Amerindians from the mainland. So they were organizing Amerindians in missions to presumably defend those missions uh, from hostile Amerindians that would come in from the mainland. When you read about the organization of these missions, sometimes you think you'd be, you were reading about Vietnam in the 1960s or Guatemala in the 1980s. <laughs> I mean, because basically they were a form of counterinsurgency. Uh, but, oh, sorry, what period are we talking about specifically? We're talking about, well, the, the missions began, the first attention in the 1600s, then by the mid-1700s, a very energetic effort made to organize all the Amerindians into missions, that is, all those non-mixed Amerindians, mm -hmm. that is, those who had already intermarried with the mm -hmm. Spaniards and so weren't included. Okay. Uh, so there's a population, an Amerindianized population, that already exists outside of the missions. Within the missions, it's those that they've identified as being of pure blood. Um, and that's uh, from the mid-1700s onwards. And, of course, capitalist production, that is inserting the labor of these people into the capitalist world market. Okay, so then these missions were about religious assimilation? Yes. Controlling labor, is that? Right. You can say Absolutely, that? Absolutely, yeah. And then they were also organized militarily? Yes. That's to protect right. the economic interests or the existence of these missions. That's right. That brings us to the end of this episode of the History Watch podcast series in which we heard from Dr. Maximilian Forte of Concordia University. Dr. Forte has researched extensively on indigenous populations of the Caribbean. To learn more about Dr. Forte's research, visit his website, openanthropology.org. The History Watch podcast series is coordinated by Dr. Audra Dipti, 
To learn more about the History Watch Project, visit us at historywatchproject.com. You can also find links to our other projects on our website. Thanks for tuning in. Goodbye. Goodbye.